Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the launch of Mr. Lim Seong-Guan's book, Can Singapore Fall? Making the Future for Singapore. We apologize for the delay and thank you for your patience. We are delighted to have Education Minister Ong Kang as our guest of honour today and grateful that he had rushed here from Parliament just to join us. Minister will deliver his remarks, followed by Mr Lim Seong-Guan, who will share his reflections on his lecture series. We then launch the book. Mr Lim will stay and sign copies of the book thereafter. But first, to kick off today's proceedings, IPS Director Mr Janadas Devan will deliver welcome remarks. Mr Ong, Minister for Education, our guest of honour, Mr Lim, ladies and gentlemen. Mr Ong, we are very grateful that you have to rush down from Parliament uh, to attend Grace's occasion. And since the fate of the government hangs on just one vote, uh, he'll be rushing back <laughs> to <laughs> cast his vote in a little while, as soon as we are done here. Um, welcome to the launch of uh, Mr Lim Seong-Guan's uh, book entitled Singapore, Can Singapore Fall? Making the Future of Singapore. This is a collection of Mr. Lim's three IPS Northern Lectures, and as well as the post-lecture discussions that were held immediately after each lecture, held during his term as the fourth SR Northern Fellow in 2007. The SR Northern Fellowship was first announced in 2013 on the occasion of our 25th anniversary. It was established to pay tribute to former President S.R. Nathan, whose long-term contributions to Singapore extended beyond his presidency. Um, our gratitude goes to both the individual and corporate donors who generous, generously gift-funded this fellowship, as well as supported IPS over the years. As we celebrate our 30th anniversary this year, I'm happy to report that we have completed five S.R. Nathan lecture series, the latest being that by HDB CEO, Chong Kun, uh, 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 Dr. Chong Kun Hien, and we have published four SR Northern lecture books. This is being the latest, the fourth. Um, our next SR Northern fellow, uh, if you have not heard, our sixth, is the distinguished historian Dr. Tan Tai Yong, who's president of Yale NUS, and actually the first non-civil servant. Um, and non-corporate, uh, uh, first academic uh, to, to deliver uh, these lectures. His lecture series is scheduled to begin in September. His lecture series will, will, will coincide partially with the 200th anniversary or bicentennial um, uh, year of 2019, Singapore's uh, founding in, by Stanford Raffles in 1819. Mr. Lim Xiangwan's lecture series was actually our best attended one of all four. Um, actually, best, best attended of all five. And it enjoyed wide um, media coverage. He began with the observation that Singapore's survival and growth could not be taken for granted. I found his lectures most enlightening, not least when I didn't agree with it. For example, his reliance on the historian Glubb, Sir John Glubb, the author of The Fate of Empires and the Search for Survival. I found the thinking of that Glubb alien and somewhat dispiriting. But what fascinated me was why Mr. Lim found Glubb valuable. It became plain that the affinity 
he felt was primarily ethical. Never mind if GLUB might seem politically incorrect to many today. Mr. Lim wasn't bothered. He relied on GLUB and returned to him repeatedly because the ethical narrative that GLUB saw underpinning history appealed to something very deep in Mr. Lim. And this is why Mr. Lim's lectures, though also policy lectures, were different from those of the two civil servants who preceded him, Mr. Peter Hose and Bilahari Kausikans. You listened to Mr. Lim, and there was no doubting what drove his thinking. It wasn't just conviction. It wasn't just logic. It wasn't certainly policy preferences. It wasn't strategy. It wasn't future thinking and whatnot. Mr. Lim's thinking wells up from a deep reservoir of ethical conviction. When you listened to him, you heard not only the arguments, the themes, but also something else deeper, below the arguments, beyond the themes, namely the moral convictions that threaded through the arguments, the themes like an insistent baseline. And for this reason, Mr. Lim's lectures were also, strangely enough, the most personal. Not because he said anything particular about his private life or biography, I'm as ignorant of it today as I was before. He didn't say much about himself at all. The lectures were personal because the whole man spoke. Mr. Lim revealed without intending to the hinterland of ethical convictions that drove his policy thinking, his public life, and his public service. He revealed himself. And I think this was why the lectures resonated with so many. After each lecture, you could see tens of people waiting to talk to him at length. I understood also why so many of my senior colleagues, older colleagues in the public service, have long told me that Mr. Lim Seong-Wan was a charismatic figure. His charisma arises from that deep reservoir of ethical convictions. So thank you, Seong-Wan, for supporting our fellowship, the goal of advancing public understanding and discussion of issues of critical national interest. Thank you. Mr. Lim Seong-Guan, the author of the book, Can Singapore Fall? <laughs> Director of IPS, Mr. Janadas. Um, sorry to cause all this trouble because we're supposed to have a debate on education yesterday, but it was shifted to today. Uh, so my colleagues are now making a fairly long speech as we speak, so, which gives me a window to come here, speak to you, and go back and cast the decisive vote <laughs> on the motion. Um, I, I read all the newspaper reports on Mr. Lim's uh, speeches, but I, frankly, I have not read the book. Uh, but today, I, I don't really want to talk about the book. Uh, but I thought, talk a bit about Mr. Lim. He, he, when he asked if I can launch this book, I said yes readily, because he has always been a mentor of mine. When I joined the civil service as a young officer, he was permanent secretary of PSD. So basically, he decides your promotion, your posting, everything. <laughs> um, my, I spent several years in transport, and then I, got, I received a memo, or somebody told me I'll be posted to the PSD, where Mr. Lim was permsec, looking after uh, corporate service, corporate services. 
namely money and people. So I, I was a bit disappointed. Yeah. So I think I must have complained to someone because next thing I know, I got hauled up by Mr. Lim to his office. Um, so, but he, he was patient. He explained to me that uh, a posting to do corporate services is extremely important for an admin service officer because running any organization, you'll realize that the levers you have to get the whole organization ticking is money and people. And so if you have these two strings, it worked for you. So with that revelation, I took up the posting and I enjoyed the posting. Today I'm in Ministry of Education. I realized under my charge are six autonomous universities. They are really autonomous. They have their own chairman. They have their own board. They decide on their own thing. Oh, Mr. Lee Zhu Yang is one of the chairman of SUTD. And so he know what I'm talking about. He's very autonomous. <laughs> and I realized the only thing I can persuade Mr. Lee Zhu Yang to maybe listen to my opinion is I control the budget and I control <laughs> certain appointments. <laughs> and I truly now understand the words of Mr. Lim and his lessons. Um, I just stepped down as second minister for defense. Well, in Ministry of Defense, constantly we are talking about um, total defense, military, civil, social, economic, psychological. And increasingly, we felt that psychological defense is the most important defense of any country now. Uh, um, conflicts are becoming so sophisticated. Even before you fire the first bullet, there will be all kinds of infiltration, using of social media, infiltrate, uh, using of online falsehoods, affecting people's sentiments, creating contradictions within society, and we see all this happening. And the way to defend it, not through bullets, not through equipment, but really our psychological resilience as a people. Do we trust each other? Do people trust government? Do government trust people? Can we band together? And it's getting more and more important, and, I, and, and who is the author, and what, whose brainchild is this? As again, Mr. Lim Siong Guan, since 1984. A very prescient framework for thinking about our national defense. And of course, I'm now in Ministry of Education. One of the first things uh, I did was I wanted Ministry of Education to be a lifelong learning ministry. So I put up a proposal, and we transfer what was used to be called Workforce Development Agency under MOM, and we transfer that function over to MOE. And so MOE, instead of looking after just formative education, now look after that plus lifelong learning. Yeah, yeah John was helping me with that, right? Um, and so, but it wasn't a straightforward exercise. There were many people expressing all kinds of views and uh, concerns, but I find that it, within MOE, they embrace that mission very readily, very readily. Because I find that within MOE, there's already a very strong uh, sense that we, lifelong learning is important. And when you dig deeper, you realize this was again planted by Mr. Lim when he was permanent secretary, when he had the vision of thinking school, learning nations. So every corner I turn in public service, every place I go, <laughs> you'll find that Mr. Lim has left an indelible mark, and not just a fleeting mark, but something that shaped the thinking of the whole organization. Uh, some months ago, I spoke to a 
wise old sage, he's a businessman, a really wise sage. And then we are talking about good leaders. Uh, we talk about the president of China, Xi Jinping, and that he's a benign good leader for China. So I ask him, for a good leader, how long does it last? Is it temporary? What's the impact of a good leader? No, what's, how long does the impact of a good leader last? He said 80 years. 80 years. So I asked, how, how did you come to this number? He said, because the career of a leader may be about 25, 30 years, but at the point of retiring, he or she is still influencing youngsters in their 20s and who will have another 50, 60 years ahead of them. And you add the two up, the impact is 80 years. It makes a lot of sense. But I also think it's minimally 80 years. Because in that process, along the way, if there are people who can internalize the thinking of the great leader and then build upon it, reinterpret it, refresh it, pass it down to the next generation, who then do the same, it can go on and on. So if you speak to Mr. Lim enough, you also realize that many of his thinking, his conviction, also came from Mr. Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, that is what I felt. And he is one person who took that torch, burned it even brighter, added his own ideas, and then passed on to future generations. So I think this book is just one very small example of the marks left by Mr. Lin, and I'm most privileged today to help launch it. Thank you very much. First of honor, Mr. Ong Yi Kang, um, Mr. Janada Stevan. Thank you very much for your remarks, and thank you very much, friends and ladies and gentlemen, for taking the time to come uh, this evening for this uh, uh, introduction to uh, and the launching of the book. Um, I wanted to say that uh, in the process of, uh, of working through lectures and so forth, I was uh, just remarking to Ariel, who very kindly looked after me through this whole series of lectures, and said, you know, this is, um, I, I, uh, among all the SR Nathan fellows, I would have been the one who had delivered the fewest number of lectures. It was uh, until that time, but now fewer, uh, future SR Nathan lectures will, will, um, uh, will be just as few. But anyway, at that time, I said, there's the fewest number of lectures. Yeah, yeah, she says, but yours is the first series of lectures which makes people, which tells people you better do something about it. Previous lectures, I mean, Ariel, you may not have remembered, uh, you're telling me that previous lectures have tended to be descriptions of what people have done and why they thought that way and so forth. Um, but um, uh, but uh, what she found was, uh, what I was trying to put across is to say, uh, this is the way I think, this is what I think the issues are, but really people have to think about it and do something about it. I want to say that when I was approached whether I would consider to be uh, the fourth SR Nathan lecture, it didn't take me very long uh, to decide uh, to, to, to agree to it, um, because uh, as I as I thought about it, I felt that this would be an opportunity for me to raise something which is all the time in my mind and close to my heart, um, talking about um, the success and the survival of Singapore. Uh, there's no doubt uh, that much of that came because I spent 21 years in the Ministry of Defense two, uh, in two periods, uh, which is interspersed by three years serving as Lee Kuan Yew as his principal private secretary. And that time, all the all the time, the issues are really about uh, how, do you, uh, how, how do you keep Singapore going? How do you um, help um, build up? How do you help assure the survival of Singapore? Those are the years of conviction that, um, that success and survival are two sides of the same coin 
for small places like Singapore. May not be same uh, that way for large countries, but it is so for for small countries. That if we succeed, we survive. If we don't, if we don't succeed, then we have a pretty hard time um, um, uh, uh, carrying on as a country uh, which is independent and sovereign, rather than a country which is just has to do whatever it is your neighbors or bigger powers may tell you to do. So. So, so I took this on as just an opportunity to um, address these issues to clarify my own thinking as to what is involved when we talk in terms of uh, how do we assure the uh, survival and success of Singapore for, let's say, the next 50 years. Um, and, and, and so I appreciate very much this opportunity that was given to me to spend these few months uh, working on this issue, thinking through, especially trying to figure out the way by which to communicate um, these thoughts. I must, uh, uh, I must thank Janadas for finally making sense of what, what, uh, what my talks were about. I didn't fully understand it until I heard what Janadas uh, <laughs> spoke just now, which was really very good and very enlightening. Uh, um, uh, and so, uh, I, you know, I was going to go through a description about what he referred to as GLAB, uh, the particular uh, point that that he didn't uh, he didn't fully appreciate or didn't uh, uh, agree with. Uh, I was going to describe it, but since that would prevent you from taking your time to read the book, I think I better not describe it. So you better read the book to know what Janadas is talking about and what I thought was very important. But the fundamental idea about Glub, uh, who was an ex-British soldier, uh, and then after he retired, he decided that he wanted uh, 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 to be an author and a historian. He decided quite early that he says it's no point studying history as taught in school in any country in the world because all history as taught in school in any country of the world is very much propaganda. Uh, it somehow must make the country feel heroic in some way. It's heroic either because it has gone and succeeded in wars and battles or you know, it's heroic because they can say how many millions of their people died for the sake of the survival and the independence of the country. So he said, if we are going to learn anything from history, we ought to study world history, which he did. He studied 3,100 years of world history, 11 empires, starting from the Assyrian Empire and going right through the British Empire. And what he found most amazing was, how come all these empires lasted at the most 250 years? And he says, you know, despite advances of technology, yet the empires last only 250 years. And in order to get an answer to that question, he decided to study the rise and fall of the empires and found that all the empires went through the same sequence of um, uh, what he called different ages, right, of the rise and fall of empires. He found all of them went through these different seven stages where he talked about the age of pioneers, the age of conquest, and they have the age of commerce where the merchants come after the people who had, who had conquered new colonies and in a sense they milked the colonies. Uh, then the age of affluence, after which you come uh, to what they call the age of intellect, then age of um, decadence, and finally the decay. I, I don't want to go to any of those details because you really ought to read the book to, to, to understand a lot more about it. But the important conclusion from, from, from his analysis was simply that affluence was the driving reason for the growth of these empires or these nations. The chase for affluence, that is what accounted for tremendous economic growth. But after it had reached the age of affluence, which is kind of the pinnacle of the power of the empire, the empires decay. 
and the decay is in a way caused by affluence. The decay is a social decay. So affluence caused the rise in economic growth and affluence in a way was the cause of the fall in social decay. And Glove was asked whether his analysis of the rise and fall of empires um, applied also to small states. And he said, yes, it applies to small states. If the small state has tasted the affluence and the power, it will go through the same sequence. So I use that really as the anchor for, for, uh, for the lectures. But it's pretty bad if I were to simply say, we have a problem, we have to think about it. I need to offer a way of thinking of possible solutions, although what I hope for really from the lectures and from this book is for people to say, you know, let's think about it. By all means, tear apart all the arguments and so forth. My desire is really for people to say, like Janadas has said, don't take the, um, the independence and the sovereignty of Singapore as a given. It is something we have to keep working at, keep creating and recreating. But fundamentally, is to ask ourselves, if we have now reached the stage of a first world economy, all that rise in economic growth, and if we think more or less we can identify ourselves as the, uh, in the age of affluence, the question is, what happened to the fall? In all instances, the empires fell because of internal social decay and because there was another empire that came along with people who are highly motivated and they were chasing their own affluence and they were chasing their new economic growth. So within that context, the question is, how should I think about the future for Singapore? And my conclusion, just to make it possible for the minister to go back to parliament as quickly as possible, <laughs> my conclusion, in a way, um, I say I can summarize in just four words. One is to deal with the social decay issue. I, like, I, I posit the idea of a gracious society that, that I think we can say most definitely we are a first world economy. I don't think we can say we are a first world society, the kind of society we'd like to be, which is good not just for ourselves today, but good for our grandchildren, but more than that, which is good for our great-grandchildren. I posit to you, gracious society, and there's a description in my second lecture as to what we mean by that. But it's the same kind of issue as you read about the World Cup and you say this First, the Japanese spectators, the Japanese support team, they go, they clean up the whole place, they take away the rubbish, they clean the seats and say, is that stupid or is that, you know, you wish we could be this, this kind of society. And now they talk about when the, Jap and the Japanese team got, uh, lost their game and they go down, they clean up everything, they clean, uh, and they, and they, and they clean up the room that they had been assigned. And this is remarkable, it's not new. Uh, I was speaking to somebody who took a walk uh, um, at the Sydney Harbour Bridge and, uh, you know, you, you walk on the arch and they were all given this um, a towel each, you know, I suppose to wipe off their sweat or, or clean themselves up after the walk. And he says, you know, there were Japanese in the team and they did this remarkable thing. They took that towel and they also washed and they also cleaned up all the various gear they were given, the safety gear they were given. And he asked them, you know, why do you do this? And they say, oh, because we clean it up for the next group of people who are going to use the gear. Now, should we aspire to be that kind? I posit to you, I think we should try to be more that, that um, 
kind of a people because I think it will give us something very special as a community. And this particularly since uh, I came across a book called The Hidden Wealth of Nations written by a guy called David Halpern who said that he did the research and he, he wrote the book because he said he was mystified by what he saw as a paradox. And that paradox was wealthier nations, the people in wealthier nations are happier than people in poorer nations. But the paradox is, why is it that people in wealthier nations don't get happier even when their countries get wealthier? And the conclusion of his research was, is because there's a hidden wealth of nations which lies in the quality of the relationships among the citizenry. And if that quality of the relationship is good, that will add to the economic growth and the social well-being of the country. Anyway, that's that part, the gracious society. The second part, I would say, is just two other words, which is smart nation. Nothing new, this is what the government has been talking about. And I would look smart nation as comprising at least two, three different elements. One is about innovation, which in Singapore we talk a lot about, but I don't think we talk enough about a culture of innovation as opposed to talking about innovation itself. I remember um, visiting Block 71 and there's this girl who was so excited about her fintech. So I asked her, so what have been, what have been your major problem you know, doing this startup? And she said, uh, my mother. I said, why the mother? I can understand mother. Mother said, I sent you to NUS. You got first class honors. You could easily get a well-paying job with DPS. And instead, you do this startup and don't even know whether the startup will be alive six months from now. We need a culture. When I was in Israel four months ago, I asked, so what do you? What do Israeli mothers want of their children? And I was told 20 years ago, all Israeli mothers want their children to be doctors or lawyers, but now they want them to be CEOs of startups. It's because there's been a whole cycle and mothers know, after all, it's not that the mothers want their children to be millionaires, but they want their children to be secure. And suddenly they say, now the mothers can see, it's not a bad thing, startups are not a bad thing. It's good for the future lives of their children. So that's one element, innovation. The second element, which is about excellence. Excellence is about people doing the best they can in each situation and being the best they can be. And we have to watch, uh, watch, uh, watch that very carefully because I think there have been remarks even by employers which says, you know, they're beginning to get people who obviously are, uh, 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 their approach to their job is that of satisfying, doing just enough to be able to get by, but not putting heart and soul into doing the best that you can according to what your own talents and abilities allow you to do. And the third element, when I talk in terms of, of smart nation, this is not just about application of technology, it is about looking outward from Singapore, uh, because, because that's how you grow opportunities, rather than just have an idea which says, you look at the Singapore economy, you say you have to look outward. None of these ideas are new, but I think the big challenge for Singapore is to say, how do you make this part of the character of Singapore? How do you make this part of the culture of Singapore? So that even from, from generations of parents and grandparents going through the current generation, building up the people, the, 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 the young people coming to our schools for future generations, this becomes a total character of people. In the same way as innovation is in many ways the culture of, uh, 
of, uh, of Israel. Um, and that's what I'm told. Entrepreneurship is a fundamental culture of Finland. They revised their whole education system, I think starting three years ago. Why? It's not about, you know, the practices may be such that so they don't have so many exams and tests and so forth. But they say the fundamental reason all these changes took place is because they had decided that the future of Finland lies in entrepreneurship. And they redid their whole education system based, based on that idea. So a typical question for a kid in primary six is, how do you go about setting up a bank? That's a typical, typical question. In the case of Singapore, we can never answer that question. Our kids can't because they say, if you don't give me the lessons, I don't know how to answer any question. <laughs> but that's different. That's exactly what the minister was telling us about, about uh, you know, lifelong learning and continuous learning and so forth. This is what it is about. So, in a sense, that's what the whole book is about. I just want to thank um, IPS for the opportunity to be able to spend a few months thinking this things through, coming to certain conclusions, but I make no claim whatsoever that uh, the, the prescriptions for the future are necessarily the correct or adequate ones for Singapore's future. But if people will be able to just read through the lectures again and just have a big verbal fight with each other, that's good enough for me. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Lin. May I now invite Minister and Mr. Janadas to the stage to launch the book, please. Mr. Lim now presents the book to a minister. And Mr. Janadas presents a memento for Mr. Lin.